And it's just like there's a big smile on their face. They feel welcomed. They feel valued from day one. They're not a little cog in a big wheel. They feel that they're there and they are recognised and they are important. So I understand and I think, you know, a lot of younger people come in and expect you to have certain things. But yes, you can put out banners. But what does it actually feel like, taste like? Hi, I'm Belden Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. My guest today is Sarah Henwood, Chief Executive Officer of UK law firm Thompson, Snell and Passmore. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Really glad to have you. Uh, Maybe you could just say a bit about yourself, but also about Thompson, Snell and Passmore. Yeah, of course. I have spent the majority of my working life specialising in the professional services sector, and that's both for accountancy and law firms. I have the slightly unusual combination of having lived and worked in the US and Asia, as well as, of course, the UK. That means I've got an appreciation of a multiple cultures and also the different approaches each of them take. You know, American, Australian and Asian and British companies all have slightly different approaches. But I managed to balance that also with significant commercial experience. I've been at board level positions of PLC, and I also had time working as a a CEO of a major royal charity. And so what brought you into Thompson, Snell & Passmore? Why did you join there? Why did you stay? I joined coming up for five years ago. I had just come back from 11 years in Hong Kong. When I was approached about the job, I went, mm, can't balance doing this role and having a son in primary. But he, he moved up to secondary and I was approached again. And I said, yeah, if it's a firm that embraces work-life balance, I can do this. And having experience of many of the magic circle firms, you know, they sort of play lip service to work-life balance. But I really needed a firm that got that. It was also a place, I suppose, one of the very few places that I felt that I could be authentic. The firm's values resonate with mine. The way of looking after people resonates with mine. The approach to clients resonates with mine. So it was about being in a place that I felt very comfortable. If you can be yourself, it takes a lot of that energy and stress out of you trying to be something that you're not. And therefore, you felt that with everybody on the same page, there was a lot that you could achieve. I can understand the attraction there. It sounds very attractive. And it also sounds very modern, very sort of of the moment. And yet, having done a little bit of research, I understand you're the oldest law firm in operation. How do those two fit together? So, yeah, we're 453 years old. That's really staggering. It is, isn't it? It it is quite amazing. We have two offices, one in Tunbridge Wells and one in Thames Gateway. But it's a firm that wouldn't be 453 years old unless it was able to evolve and change, respond and lead. 
Um, we're certainly not the biggest law firm in the world. We don't want to be. We found our niche. We know what it is. We're very good at doing what we do. But within that, it means that we can be adaptive, responsive. We have very good lines of communication with our clients, with our people. And so we are able to be flexible and adapt very quickly. And as a firm, it's a firm that has always put its people first. I mean, you hear a lot of people saying people are our asset and da 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 But in this, people really are centre and focus. People both in terms of our clients and people both in terms of our staff. In total, we're just under 300 people. Right. Okay. So you've said sort of we found our niche, you know, we're not the biggest... But equally, there, there are people who would argue that professional services firms of all types and law firms in particular sort of have to grow. It's buried in the, you know, in the way the career works and the way people make money. And perhaps a different school of thought says, oh, you don't want to be a small firm. You know, economies of scale, et cetera, et cetera. How do you square all that off? What's your response to that? Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we don't grow. I don't say we don't have ambitions for growth. We do. But we know what our marketplace is. So we're not going to pretend to be something we're not or take services on board that we don't feel comfortable in delivering to the high quality and standard that we demand of ourselves. So, for example, we don't have ambitions to be international. We do have international clients that come to us for their UK work, both personal and commercial we do have clients around the country, although our two offices are in the southeast and a majority of our clients are in the southeast. We have many clients that use us from across the UK, either because they've heard of our reputation, because we have national reputation in certain areas, but also because they have expanded themselves and they know that we can go with them because we understand who they are. Mm -hmm. If you don't mind, let's go sort of straight into the question of purpose. What would you say the firm's purpose is? Or it might have more than one, but how does that word purpose show up? (laughs) Well, it's funny, actually, because when you asked me to do this podcast on purposeful strategy, Mm -hmm. I originally thought, we don't have an articulated purpose. So this podcast isn't going to last very long. (laughs) But then after that somewhat knee-jerk reaction and further thought, I realized we actually have a very strong purpose, which is actually so embedded in our firm that it's actually our DNA. And it is expressed through our incredibly strong and compelling culture. I mean, I interpret purpose, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, as the why do we do what we do. We happen to be in the legal market, so that's what we do. That is, we offer legal services. But why we do it is because we want to solve our clients' legal problems to help them achieve their ambitions and get for them the best outcomes that we can. And that purpose of providing a positive difference to people's lives also drives our approach to staff and our role in the community. So in non-consultancy speak, I would say our purpose is the why we do what we do. Our legal services 
are what we do. Our business then plan then becomes the how we do it and the when we do it. And the who bit is our clients, our people and our community. So the sense I got was that purpose, nobody really talks about it very much because it's sort of like the water you swim in. Yes, it's who we are. It's the way that we approach. It's our culture. This is the way we do things. It's our behaviours. It's the things that we value. It's the approach that we take. It's the context in which we make our decisions. So internally, do you do any work? Have you done any work around trying to articulate a set of values or define the culture? Is it sort of, no, actually doing that just might get in the way? (laughs) I mean, we do have values. So our values are things like building relationships, astute thinking, um, taking a direct approach, the importance of achieving results. And we've most recently added, for for obvious reasons, uh, the importance of having high standards of ESG. And if you look at those values, they all resonate back to what I said about endeavouring to make a difference, a positive difference in people's lives. This is how you go about it. We're strong believers in the power of internal relationships. So, you know, Christmas parties, summer parties, we will have regular meetups in what we call our hub, you know, where we all meet for coffee and things. We will go out for curry nights and tie nights. We're about to do a three-day walk across the southern far coast. So we get people together on those sorts of things. But that's the sort of thing that is important to us. How about your strategy? Do you have a sort of spelled out strategy? Is there some process of developing and defining that? How do you go about it? Yeah, I I mean, I would say our strategy and purpose are aligned and intertwined. We want to ensure, as I said earlier, that we have a profitable, growing business. And that is important because it offers exciting careers to our people and meets the developing needs of our clients. I mean, clients' needs change over time, new things happen. We need to be able to respond to that. Developing that strategy or business plan is far less organic than the purpose. I mean, we're very sort of focused on that. We have a five-year plan. We're currently one year into the latest five-year plan. We undertake a review on an annual basis as a matter of course. One thing I would say is that we learned from COVID that setting plans needs to be an evolving process because you actually need to be able to react very fast to what is happening in the market. I mean, just staying on COVID for a moment, it was very much a two-edged sword. And I wouldn't for one moment say that it was a great thing to go through because it caused a lot of pain and heartache. But it did give us that burning platform for change. And we were able to improve our efficiencies and effectiveness throughout the organisation. Some of that we literally had to do overnight. And what I would say is that nobody likes change, perhaps lawyers least of all. So having a reason to change was very good for us, very, very helpful. So now when we look at business planning, we're very conscious that, yes, we should have goals set to keep us in line and focus, 
but are also very conscious that things move so quickly that you need to be able to react to that, both to take advantage, but also to minimise any risks that are happening. So as you kind of develop that five-year plan, and then as you look at it annually, who gets involved? How long does it take? What sorts of meetings are there? You know, if I had some video of it with the sound off, what would I be seeing? Who would be where? What would they be doing? Well, the one we did prior to this one, we took up the floorboards. It was because I suppose I was relatively new to the firm. I really wanted to understand everything. We did loads of research. We questioned every assumption, pulled it apart. We had what we call our heads of department. We had a sort of steering group. They were involved. We did bottom down and top up. So each department was asked, what do you see as the opportunities coming? What are you hearing from your clients? What do you see as things that we have to be aware of? We agreed the plan and we actually set ourselves some pretty big financial milestones to hit because we wanted to think and challenge ourselves out of the norm. So we said, you know, if we're going to have to achieve this goal, what are we going to have to do differently? A lot of that was a right, okay, we need to be much more of a lean, mean fighting machine in terms of efficiency and effectiveness. So that happened overnight with COVID. Literally, you know, if you had your video before, you would have seen desks surrounded by files up to here. But overnight, people were paper light, paper less, working from home which has now evolved into hybrid working. We've got, you know, smart post, we embraced AI, all of that sort of stuff. Where we are now, because we've got that knowledge, that bedrock of the market, and we really understand it, and we have, as I said, this constant dialogue with clients, we don't have to do so much of a up with the floorboards again. We sort of have that knowledge. So the process is much quicker. And now each department has... Uh, a five-year plan. The detail of the plan is really around years one to two and three, less so around four and five, but each year you then look at the next year on. Those plans are shared into a firm plan. We build that up. We share the firm plan with everybody and then each department goes into detail. It's written then into people's personal objectives. So I have a direct line as a person in the firm with both my department's plan and the firm's plan. We then have regular reporting from each of the HOD, head of department, on progress against plan. And it goes back to the plan and we say, how does this fit in? How does this achieve with what we're doing? So I have done in my life a lot of business planning, spent a lot of time doing it, had beautifully crafted plans. Again, the draw and they stay there. And I said, all the energy, the effort goes into that is wasted. I would rather that we spent 90% of the time of doing this actually reviewing and making sure these plans happen. So implementation is far more important than a beautifully crafted document. So our emphasis now is much more on the doing and the achieving and making sure it's happening rather than a beautiful plan. 
You said that the plans are regularly reviewed. I, when you say head of department, I assume department there is like a legal practice area. Yes, it's a le- or, or a business service. Our heads of business services and our heads of department all have plans for their for their departments. Yeah. Okay. And does that regular review happen sort of with that group collectively, you know, everybody reviewing everybody else's or is it more a one-on-one? Uh, it's both. So your personal objectives are reviewed one-on-one twice a year and your departmental plan, it's reviewed quarterly with the senior management team. And in addition, the equity partners will all be involved and there is a presentation of each department's plan on a regular basis and an update of that. And then any time anybody wants to recruit or, as I say, achieve an opportunity, it comes back to either the senior management team or, if necessary, the board and will say, how does this fit in with the plan? How's the plan going? And all of that. So it's much more a living, breathing document. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And senior management team is that the heads of department, both the kind of services and business services or? No, our senior management team consists of the senior partner, myself, the finance director and the HR director. Ah, okay. So that's sort of the day-to-day management of the firm. Right. But then monthly we have the board and that has a senior partner, three elected equity partners, myself, the finance director and the HR director. And then we have meetings of full equity partnership on a regular basis. And again, the business plan is discussed at each of those. You're really making sure the plan happens, not just developing and, like you say, sticking in a drawer. Um, as, as you've been on this journey over the last sort of five years or so, what surprised you most? Surprised and delighted me has been the ability of the firm to really embrace change and make it happen. It was very interesting. When I was in my interview stage, the then senior partner said, you know, we know we need to change, but how on earth are you going to make change happen in a law firm like this? Nobody wants to do it. Why would you? The classic, no one screams for change other than a baby needing its nappy changed. So what are you going to do? And I went, well, you're going to need a burning platform. And my lovely senior partner at the time raised his eyes heavenward and went, oh, my God, consultancy speak. And I went, yeah, OK, we'll take the consultancy speak out. But unless there is a burning passion or a reason to change, no one's going to do it. You know, people might pay lip service, but the hearts won't follow. And you don't really affect change unless you've got the hearts as well as the minds, because you have to change the behaviour and the characteristics, as you will well know. And then, as I said, COVID happened. And that was the reason it was the burning platform, the ability of people to literally embrace this overnight, even what you would call the dinosaurs, which we haven't really got. You know, there's always some people in a firm who are far more resistant to change than others grabbed it. And that was the lovely, lovely surprise. And has that embracing of change in that time sort of led to a a step change in the desire for change? I think you have to be careful because change takes a lot of energy. It's stressful. And you need to let people almost get used and build their habits into that change. Sure. You know, if you keep constantly changing, people 
are uncomfortable, they don't have a firm foundation. So yes, we've proved we can do lots of change very quickly, but we're also very keen to show that, as you would say, our purpose hasn't been lost amongst all of that. And that actually was very important to us because when we came out of COVID, we realised, and I always think about it as a bank account. Our culture is that bank account. We took a lot of money out of that bank account in order to help people through COVID. It played naturally to our strengths. We're a very caring, supporting organisation. And Thompson, Stull and Passmore were the people they saw every day and the only people they saw every day. Our relationships became very different over that period of time. But it also meant that when we came back, we had to then spend a lot of time building back the bank account, if that makes sense. So we put a lot of emphasis bringing people back together, reminding them the importance of why we are and who we are and what we do and what we value. And also for me, an important part of people's development is done through something I call osmosis learning which is when you sit next to somebody and you just hear about the way they have a phone conversation or you're grabbed into a meeting and you see how a meeting is run or you're able to ask the question in the moment and just say, has anybody had any experience of this or whatever? And if you're working at home on your own, you lose that bit. So we're back to hybrid working and a big part of that is about getting the osmosis learning back up. It's about investing back into our DNA. Mm. You talked about hybrid. I assume that means people are in the office part of the week and working from home or wherever they want to work from. How have you enacted that? Is it just sort of, well, we kind of let everybody find their own space? I've seen people do all sorts of things. How are you addressing it? We do have a policy, one which took a lot of discussion. We did polls with our staff to find out what they felt comfortable with. And what we've ended up on is a minimum of two days a week in the office. And within that, each department has what we call an anchor day. You know, there'll be one day when all the team are in the office so that might be weekly, it might be fortnightly, or it might be monthly. But, you know, some people come in five days a week. Our trainees are in three or four days a week, depending on the department, because we are keen that they get the opportunity to learn as much as possible. Uh, there is a certain amount that obviously can be done from home. But for trainees, it's a lot about being on the job and learning. Anybody new to the firm, we expect them to be in more than more established people again to get that DNA. Some of our departments now have more people than desks. So we're working through the hot desking bit, uh, which is informal at the moment, but is now getting to that tipping point where it'll become more formal. I've lived in hot desking. I love hot desking, mm -hmm. especially as you know, you can just end up anywhere on the floor with different people. It's great. Have you changed the office layout at all to kind of reflect any of that? Or is that still something you're thinking about? Literally, a couple of months before COVID hit, 
we'd just moved offices and we'd moved into completely open plan offices with spaces for so it was perfect. You were kind of there anyway. I mean the offices were a bit empty for, <laughs> for a couple of years, but it was yeah, it's worked very well for us. Sure. And so any more changes that need to be made will be very easy to do. Very good. And what have you found most difficult? Um I think the thing that, that I've always carried through in my working life is that I am not a lawyer. I am not an accountant. And so sometimes people go, well, you're not one of us. That hasn't happened at Thompson, Sun and Passmore. But it is that bit about I am slightly different, but it's different in a hugely positive way. Because I say that if I can't understand what's going on. What hope have our clients and our staff got of what's going on? Because I'm not stupid. I just chose not to do legal stuff. So for me, what could be difficult is actually for me a strength and gives me insights and advantage that I find helpful. Yeah. What advice, if any, might you have for a business leader, you know, looking at their own organization's purpose and strategy and how to get the two lined up? As I said earlier, it's about being authentic. You have to be true to yourself. You can't put on an act. You have to be who you are. Integrity, huge integrity is very important to me. And I would say, listen to what your clients and staff are telling you. And listening means actually asking and then listening to the answer and understanding what it is that they're saying and how that impacts on what you're doing and what are their priorities. I could be wrong. You know that will tell me if I am. But it feels to me like there's a connection between really listening and being authentic. Yes. It resonates with me, but where have you seen that show up? Well, how many times have you had a conversation with someone and you know that they're not really listening and trying to understand your point of view? It's almost lip service that you feel they have their set agenda. They're looking for reassurance and validation from you that their agenda is right. Whereas I approach it about I have a problem, I have an issue, I have an ambition I want to achieve. Let me talk it through. Let me understand another person's point of view, the impact that has on them. What are their priorities in all of this? And use that to then fashion what it is that needs to be done. That means that what you do inevitably is stickier because it resonates. It is the right thing to do you will have picked up things that you probably weren't aware of. You will understand what it is that will make it work. And having listened and understood any concerns or whatever, you can better explain why it is that you're doing what you're doing and address any concerns. So, yeah, yeah. Being able to listen and really understand also makes a person feel valued that they do have an important part of this. I always say to people, please, you know, tell me what's great. Tell me what isn't so great. Tell me what we're getting right and tell me what we're getting wrong. And it's not me 
judging them. It's about me trying to understand. And I would be so proud if people said to me, you're incredibly approachable, Sarah, and we can tell you what it's like. And that's why I put a lot of emphasis on going to talk to clients and saying, what's it like to be a client? What do we get right? What don't we get wrong? What is it that are the important things to you? And are we delivering against those? What haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What haven't we touched on that would be good for us to spend a few minutes on? I mean, this has just come into my head, but isn't it important to enjoy it? Isn't it important to have a bit of fun as well? It's most of our lives and it's most of other people's lives. Absolutely. It's not about having fun and not being professional, but people have got to enjoy it. They've got to want to do what they do. So if you can make it a pleasant, enjoyable thing to do, I mean, selfishly, you're going to get more out of them, but you're going to get more out of it yourself as well. Exactly. What questions, if any, do you have for me? What have I said that has surprised you? I'll be honest, probably the thing that's most, when I say surprising, not not in the sense of shocking, but just a bit out of pattern for my guess. And you, it's the thing you pointed to right at the start. You don't have a, and here's our purpose. And I'm, I, I, I've got no point of view as to whether that's, wow, that's so smart, or whether that's, you know, they, they'd do so much better if they could drag it out and articulate it. The, the one thing I will say, just, just on that topic, having, you know, heard a number of people talk about it, often organizations get a lot of social capital value, get a lot of connection going through the process of talking about the purpose, even if when they get to the end of it, they all kind of look at each other and go, yeah, but we kind of knew that, didn't we? <laughs> I, I get that, and but I, I would challenge you, if you were to come and talk to any of our people and get them to say, what is it about Thompson, Snell and Passmore? And it's interesting, if I talk to people who are literally for week one, two or three, and I say, what's it like? And they go, oh, your culture is so great. It's, uh, and it's just like, there's a big smile on their face. They feel welcomed. They feel valued from day one. They're not a little cog in a big wheel. They feel that they're there and they are recognised and they are important. So I understand. And I think, you know, a lot of younger people come in and expect you to have certain things. But yes, you can put out banners. But what does it actually feel like, taste like? How does it react in a situation? What is it when things are difficult? How are you as a firm reacting to that? And I think if you are authentic all the way through and your decisions are driven by your DNA and your belief in what is important. Yeah, I agree. Just as sort of one last question from me, if there's a way to sort of crystallize it so somebody's in their first couple of weeks how do they get it what happens what goes on or doesn't go on that leads them to go oh the culture's here and it's amazing what's that about uh i think it's the importance of feeling welcomed and making a contribution quickly when i sit down with every new person and give them a chat and everything else and i say look you know i, I could tell you about the business plan 
and I, I do, but I also want to know something about you. What do you do out of work? Tell me about your family. Where do you live? All of that. And it's that you have to be careful that it's not seen as the incredibly nosy and intrusive. But I have in front of me a person, not somebody who has a legal skill or a business services skill. This is a person. And that approach is true across everybody. It's a very caring, nurturing, family orientated type of place. I don't know if you have experience of the big law firms, but I can immediately contrast it with that and know how we're different. And we have clients that have been with us for generations. Really? Oh, yeah. Generations uh, of families, of companies, of, you know, if someone's bought a house with us, they'll do a will with us, they'll acquire a company with us, all of those sorts of things. It is really... And this is a phrase that came out when I was first coming into this world, trusted advisor. We really are that type of advisor to our clients, which is more than just the legal answer to your problems. Right. That's probably a pretty good note to end on. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us and particularly thank you for your enthusiasm and your joy, which really comes across. I think that's really great. (laughs) It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us and leave us a five-star review. It helps others find the podcast. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Mm -hmm.